reading of the Word of God. And if you have your Bibles with you, please turn in them to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 and follow along from the text as I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. And we'll have it up for you on the screen as well. 1 Peter 2 commencing at verse 4. And coming to him as to a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Would you stay standing and join me in a word of prayer? Father, we who claim the name of Christ and who know you as Savior, we praise you for electing us to salvation. We praise you for your foreknowledge for sanctification by God the Holy Spirit unto obedience in the sprinkling of blood through Jesus the Christ. We adore the wonders of your condescending love. We marvel at true believers' high privilege within whom all heaven comes to dwell, abiding in God and God in us. We believe it. Oh God, help us to experience it to the full. Continue to teach us that Christ's righteousness satisfies justice and evidences your love. Help us to make use of it by faith as the ground of our peace and of your favor and acceptance so that we may live always near the cross of Jesus the Christ in whose matchless name we ask it and all God's people said, Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, it was in the old movie, Inherit the Wind, Hollywood sort of spin on the Scopes monkey trial that took place in Dayton, Tennessee in the 1920s, which uh, Frederick March, the actor, actually portrays three-time presidential candidate William Jennings Bryan. And William Jennings Bryan was actually called to the stand in that trial in order to testify on behalf of the Bible's view of creation versus evolution. Well, Brian is cross-examined by the famous trial lawyer Clarence Darrow, who is played in the movie by Spencer Tracy. And on cross-examination, three rocks are laid in front of Brian, and he's asked what he thinks about the ages of those rocks. And William Jennings Bryan, the character, responds with the classic line, I care more about the rock of ages than I do the age of rocks. It's an admonition, friends, that we're going to see as we look at this passage in 1 Peter chapter 2 today that we would all do well 
to abide by. So keep your Bibles open to 1 Peter chapter 2. And as we come into what we just read already this morning, let me set it up for you by saying that, you know, we've been studying along with Pastor Jamie in this passage, or in this book, I should say, of 1 Peter. And all along so far in chapter 1 and the start here of chapter 2, Peter has been talking about personal salvation, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that comes about when you surrender your heart and life to Him as Lord and Savior and acknowledge Him as such. But now, Peter, if you will, does a little shift in his focus. Instead of talking about the individual relationship with Christ, he starts talking about corporately our relationship with Christ. And he starts talking about the church. Basically, what he's saying here is not so much what I am in Christ, is what we as believers in Christ are. His spiritual house, his body, his royal priesthood, and so forth. And he uses this metaphor of a spiritual building in this passage we're looking at primarily today. Now, you need to understand this word that Peter is writing is is intended to be, at least, tremendous encouragement to his readers. You see, the people reading this in the first century are going through a ton of heartache and sadness and persecution and suffering. Nero has set fire to Rome, and he's burnt Rome down, and he's now blamed it on all the Christians. And so they're being persecuted for that, and the Christians all around the known world at this time are being persecuted simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And you may have walked into this building this morning and you may be going through your own kind of persecution, your own suffering, your own heartache. And you might start asking some of the questions that these first century Christians, no doubt, were asking as well. Have I really trusted in Jesus Christ? If I have really trusted in Jesus Christ, has my trust been misplaced? Have I placed it really in the right thing or have I been deceived? And what Peter wants these first century Christians to learn and what he wants us to learn as well today is absolutely do not consider your troubles. Don't consider your suffering. Consider your Savior. If you've genuinely come to Him, if you know the living stone, if you know the cornerstone, if you know Jesus Christ is the foundation of your life, then rest and trust in Him. You have indeed made the right decision. You have come, as He's going to show us, to the only solid foundation, the solid rock, Jesus the Christ. Now, why the metaphor of a building? I asked that when I was going through this. I mean, Peter was a fisherman. Most people, if they want to illustrate something, they pick something out of their realm of their sphere of knowledge. Why use a building? I really like this. Peter was a Jew. He's writing his letter primarily to Jews, Gentiles as well, but even Gentiles uh, impacted by the Jewish culture and understanding with the Jews uh, and the temple and so forth at that time. And he wants to encourage these suffering believers, if you will. And so Peter looks around and says, what is the one thing that I could seize upon that would encourage these people going through this suffering? What is the one thing in their culture? What's the one thing in their background? What's the one thing that they revere and respect more than anything else and reverence more than anything else? And he hits upon it. He says, the temple, the physical temple in Jerusalem with its priesthood and its sacrifices. It's the focal point of everything in, the, in Judaism, everything in their culture. And so Peter says, let me tell you something, believer going through suffering today. Let me tell you something, believer going through suffering at this time as well. God loves you so much. Guess what? That physical temple that you revere and you think is the end all of everything and all that goes on there. God loves you so much that that temple, which is going to be done away with, just like everything in this world is going to be done away with anyhow. He says, God loves you so much that he is building a new eternal temple. He's building right now a spiritual temple. And what's more, you're not only going to be in it, you're going to be a part of it. 
You're going to be a living stone. You're going to be a part of that temple. And what's more, you're a part of the priesthood that performs the sacrifices in the temple. And what's more, the suffering and the heartache and the highs and the lows and the joys and the sadness that you're going on through, going through in this life, he says that's a part of the sacrifices that you're going to worship and hold up to God, uh, I should say offer up to God in worship as a part of your spiritual sacrifice to Almighty God. He says, be encouraged. So much honor, so much privilege, so much prestige is being poured upon you, believer. You are a part of the eternal house, temple of Almighty God. And then he says, let me tell you how it all starts. Let me tell you how you become a living stone in this temple. He picks it up right here at the beginning in verse 4. And he says this, and coming to him, Christ, as to a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. Stop right there. Coming to him as a living stone. That word, therefore, coming has got great truth in it. Peter doesn't use the Greek word that means just show up, like somebody shows up and then goes. He uses a totally different Greek word here. He's using a word that implies remaining, staying, abiding. It has a permanent aspect to it. It's what the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 said when he said, Therefore, he, Christ, is able to save forever them who draw near to God through him. In other words, those who draw near, those who remain. Friends, it is critically important that we understand this concept of what it means here to come to Him. Many times, people come to Christ. Many times, people have some sort of encounter with Christ. They walk an aisle, they pray a prayer, they raise their hand, but they've never come to Jesus Christ the way Peter and the Word of God is talking about here. They've never come to Jesus Christ with the saving faith that the Word of God insists upon if you're going to know Him as your solid rock and as your foundation. Over in Luke chapter 18, excellent illustration of this. Young man one day comes to Jesus Christ. You have heard him referred to, I'm sure most of you, as the rich young ruler. Young man comes to Jesus Christ and he asks all the right questions. He says, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do, in other words, to get into a right relationship with Almighty God? Now, Jesus knew that this young ruler had come to him with reservations. This young ruler had come to him with conditions. This young ruler had come to Jesus Christ, but with the mindset, I'll come to Jesus Christ, but I don't want him making any claims on my wealth or my property, my assets, my possessions. And so, knowing that... Jesus looks at him and says, oh, one thing you lack, go and sell everything you got and give it to the poor and then come follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. And what's the account in Luke 18 say? It says the rich young ruler went away very sorrowful because he had a lot of wealth. Now, what's the point? The point of that is not, you know, you need to go and sell everything you got and give it to the poor and you could be a Christian. That's not the point. There's nothing you can do, nothing you can pay, no acts of charity, nothing you can buy, and nothing you can give away in order to become a believer, in in order to come into the kingdom of heaven, I should say. The point is this. Jesus says, you come to me, you don't come to me on your terms. You come to me on my, Jesus' terms. Peter says, that is exactly what this coming is all about. What are Jesus' terms? You come to me, just like it says in the Sermon on the Mount. You come to me aware of your spiritual poverty, aware of your spiritual bankruptcy, mourning over your sinfulness, understanding that you have violated every standard of a holy and a righteous God. 
and with a heart mourning for your sin and repenting over it, throw yourself on the living cornerstone, Jesus the Christ. You cry out to him to forgive you for your sins, to come into your life and make you whole. That's the way you come to Christ. In the words of Augustus Toplady, who penned a famous hymn, Rock of Ages, he said it so well. Could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no languor, no laziness, no? These for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. In my hand no price I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Rock of ages, cleft for me, broken for me, crucified for me. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Is that the way you came to Jesus Christ? Is that the way you come to Jesus Christ today? Friends, on the authority of the word of God, I pray so. I seriously pray so. Now notice here in verse 4, Peter refers to Jesus Christ as the living stone. This is so critical, and it's a real paradox, actually. The phrase living stone, gets this, speaks, are you ready, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel is saturated all through this passage of Scripture. He talks about the stone being rejected. Well, what's the ultimate rejection? Ultimately, he allows himself to be so rejected that they crucify him. But, he says, he's a living stone. God raised him from the dead. And Peter wants to elaborate on that. Now, you know, I was thinking about this and I thought, you know, if the concept you wanted to communicate was life, why would you use a stone to communicate life? I mean, plants live, animals live, people live, stones are dead. Why would you use a stone? Well, one simple, easy answer is it carries through the spiritual metaphor. He's building up a spiritual house. The temple was built with stones. And so he's saying he's a spiritual stone, the living cornerstone. We are living stones. And it carries through that building metaphor. Well, that's true. But I love what one commentator pointed out. He says, no, think about it. He says, you know, a living stone. You don't see living stones in our world. A living stone is not a natural phenomenon. A living stone is above nature. It's super nature. It's supernatural. And what he's underscoring here is the deity of the person and work of Jesus the Christ. The fact that Jesus Christ was all man and yet he was also all God. And when he died on that cross, he died all the way in the flesh. We even use the phrase stone cold dead. But God raised him again. And authenticated his acceptance as the precious cornerstone, unique and like no other. Because he's a living stone. Friends, Jesus Christ came primarily into the world for one purpose. He's the author of life and he came to impart life. He came to take people from the realm of spiritually dead and place them in the spiritually alive. That's what it says in verses 9 and 10 of this chapter that we just read a moment ago. He says in the Gospel of John, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. In 1 John, in the writing of Jesus, the Apostle John says, He that hath the Son hath life. Jesus himself in John 14, 6, what's he say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, no woman comes unto the Father except through me. Now, interestingly enough, Peter, of all people, and I'll tell you in a moment why I say of all people, but 
Peter uses three Old Testament passages to support this marvelous truth. Peter appeals to the ultimate authority. It should always be the ultimate authority in your life and mine. He appeals to the Word of God, the Scriptures. And the only Scriptures that existed in his day, of course, was the Old Covenant. And so he supports what he says in verses 4 and 5, in verses 6, 7, and 8, by citing three Old Testament passages that all refer to this stone or rock metaphor. In verse 6, he's going to quote Isaiah 28, 16. In verse 7, he's going to quote Psalm 118, verse 22. And in verse 8, he's going to utilize Isaiah 8, verse 14. Let's read them together. Verse 6. For this is contained in Scripture. In other words, this is what the Word of God says. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and get this, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. It is so ironic that Peter is the one the Holy Spirit of God uses to share this truth in writing the scriptures. You say, why so ironic that Peter? Think about it. Old Testament metaphors, stone, rock. What did Jesus nickname Peter? Cephas, rock, stone. And this is so important that you see this because there are many people around the globe at this time who are caught up in the error that the church of Jesus Christ is founded on Peter. It was not founded upon Peter, friends. They believe that Peter was the first in a long line of earthly rulers that started with Peter and now continue up to the present day and heads and rulers over the church and they refer to this doctrine of apostolic succession and they take that primarily from a misreading of a passage of scripture over in Matthew 16 that we're not going to deal with this morning but suffice it to say I think sheer logic would tell you this if when Jesus turned to Peter and talked about founding the church if Jesus meant that Peter was to be the cornerstone the rock the foundation on which the church was based don't you think Peter would have known it and Peter, don't you think Peter would have let us know it? And don't you think writing under the power of the Holy Spirit of God, Peter certainly wouldn't have lied. He sits there and he goes through these passages and he says, look, Jesus Christ, he's the stone. Jesus Christ is the choice, precious uh, cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the rock of stumbling and the stone of offense for those who disbelieve in him. You don't think Peter was talking about himself when he wrote those passages. Oh, friends, let me tell you something. He knew he wasn't the fulfillment of those Old Testament passages. Peter knew the pebble that he really was compared to Jesus Christ. But friends, this very error is one of the heresies that the Reformation was launched against. Jesus Christ and Christ alone is the foundation of the church of God. And there is no other. Now, he uses this phrase cornerstone. I don't know much about construction, but I've learned a little bit. And I've read a lot recently. And I'll tell you something. Cornerstone carries with it some tremendous symbolism, some, some tremendous spiritual truth, again, to encourage us as believers today. First of all, the cornerstone is the very first stone that's ever laid in the building of a building. 
And, there, and it's also the stone, by the way, it's placed at the corner. That's why they call it a corner stone. Okay, and it's the most important stone in the building. Why? Because that is the stone off of which all the other stones and edifices and all the lines in the building are going uh, uh, to be run, if you will. In other words, if you have the cornerstone here, the cornerstone has absolutely got to be perfect. Perfect in the way it's shaped and cut and perfect in the way it's positioned. Why so? Because all of the lines, all of the walls that run this way, all the walls that run this way, and the vertical that goes this way is going to be based on it. If there's imperfections in that cornerstone, the next stone that sits on it will be a little off, and the next stone will be a little bit off. And a little imperfection at the base, a little bit of deviation here, when you go hundreds of feet high, will grow to be a big problem later on. The whole building's going to fall. All of the lines, it's like a plumb line, are shot off of that cornerstone. And Peter says he's the perfect cornerstone. The Old Testament prophecy, he's the perfect cornerstone. Daniel chapter 2 says he's a cornerstone. He's a stone hewn without hands. When he says Jesus Christ is the perfect cornerstone, he's talking about, first of all, in his essence, his deity, the deity of Christ. He's talking about in his conduct, what he does, the way he's set, and the lines that run off him. He's talking about the holiness of Christ. And when he talks about Christ being the perfect cornerstone and all the lines and angles run off of him, he's really talking about the sovereignty of Christ. You are a living stone being built up in a home, in a house to Almighty God. And all the lines of that house run through Christ and run off of Christ. You know what that means? That means Almighty God in the person of Jesus Christ has his hand on everything going on in your life. He's in control of it all. It was the perfection of the cornerstone that maintains, one author says, the symmetry of the building. Colossians 1.17 says it so well. He's before all things and in all things and in him, it says, all things hold together. Everything fits perfectly in God's plan, friends. Be encouraged, believer in Christ today. Notice that Peter refers here, by the way, in verse 5, to the people that come to Christ, the living stone, as living stones themselves. And you know, it's one thing to come to a living stone. It's another thing for you to be a living stone yourself. This is an amazing way that Peter utilizes to illustrate great truth. Those who come to Jesus Christ have Christ's life imparted in them. If you truly know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today, you have the life of the sovereign God of the universe resident within you. This is not the sanctuary. You, believer in Christ, you are the sanctuary. You are the temple of Almighty God. You talk about a life of significance. You talk about importance. You talk about encouragement when you're going through suffering. Jesus Christ is in us. It isn't that we just honor Him. It isn't that we just bow the knee to Him. It isn't that we just pray to Him, which we do. It's that we have His very life in us. You say, why are you taking the time in this sermon to emphasize this so strongly? Because, friends, so many people miss it. They miss it. They believe that the church of Jesus Christ is founded on something else. The church of Jesus Christ, the spiritual house of God, is not founded on a religious system. It's not founded on a religious hierarchy. It's not founded on any idea of apostolic succession. It's not founded on a liturgical format. That's why we say that anything else, the church of Jesus Christ is built upon Christ himself. We sang that song. The church has one foundation, Jesus the Lord. Peter says, by coming to this living stone, you, Krista, you become 
a living stone yourself. Now, I don't know if you ever thought about that, but it's an amazing thing when you think about it. The verse of Scripture I wrote down was Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, now I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. But then he goes on and says, but the life I live, I live to the glory of God. And so what do you mean? Do you live or don't you live? It's a very subtle difference. It's being controlled by the Spirit of God. It's humbly submitting your heart to the authority of the Word of God and doing His bidding through the Word of God as opposed to doing it on your own. I, it's amazing and fascinating in the number of times if you look in the Scriptures. What Christ is, we become when we come to Him. He's a living stone, we come to Him, we become living stones. He's a Son of God, we come to Him, we become sons of God. He's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek and we come to him and we become his royal priesthood. He's the light of the world and he asked us to be lights into a darkened world. He did the ultimate sacrifice on the cross and he asked us to present our lives as a sacrifice to him, pleasing and fragrant and holy. Peter says that all that God is in Christ, you are as a believer in Jesus Christ. You know, I don't know if you ever thought about this before. But Christianity is the only religion, and I use the word religion very advisedly, Christianity is the only religion in the world where the life of the one we worship becomes our life. Do you ever think about that? You talk to people, nobody ever says, I'm in Buddha. Nobody ever says, you know, I'm in Confucius. Nobody ever says, I'm in Muhammad. But believers in Jesus Christ say, I'm in Christ. Rock of ages, cleft for me. What's he say? Let me hide myself in thee. Or as the word of God says, always better. Colossians 3, verses 3 and 4. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ, he says, who is our life. There it is. And that's why we always point out, and take great pains to point out, Christianity in its essence is not a religion. It's a relationship with Almighty God through the person and work of Jesus the Christ. The question this morning is, do you really have a living relationship with Jesus Christ? Or have you been living your life trying to be good? Trying to abide by a series of rules and do's and don'ts by your own willpower. By your own sucking it up and desire to do the right thing. If that's what you've been doing, that is sinful, prideful, self-help, legalistic mindset masquerading as genuine Christianity. And your focus is misplaced. I can't tell you. I cannot tell you. How many positive thinking, self-help, psycho-cybernetic, name it and claim it, visualize it, possibility thinking, and on and on and on books littered our home and I grew up as a child. And sad to say, my dear mother, when she came to the end of her life, all of those things that she had based the foundation of her life upon crumbled underneath her like a house of cards. She had placed her eternal destiny in the wrong foundation. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. What have you placed your eternal destiny in? Really? Really? 
The stone, he says here, which the builders rejected, has become the cornerstone. And look what he says in verse 8. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For those who reject Jesus Christ, friends, which is most of the world, he's become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Meaning what? Well, as always, the best interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. And over in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus is confronting some of the scribes and Pharisees one day. And he decides in the last week of his life, right before he goes to the cross, and he starts confronting these scribes and Pharisees, and he tells them a story. He tells them a story about a landowner who had a piece of property, and he created a vineyard in it. He dug a wall around it, put a wine press in it. He goes away to a far country, and he releases it out to some vine growers. And later on, when the harvest time comes, the parable goes, Jesus said he sends his servants, his slaves, to the vine growers to collect the produce from the harvest. And the vine growers, they kill one of the slaves, they beat one of the slaves, they uh, murder another one. He says, I'll send more slaves to them. So the, the landowner sends more slaves to them and more servants to try to collect what is due him, and the vine growers kill all of them as well. Now, in the parable, the landowner is God, and the servants are the slaves that come to collect his produce are the prophets, the Old Testament prophets. And so he tells the scribes and Pharisees, finally the landowner says, I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect my son. But what happens when the son comes? The vine growers say, hey, this is the heir. Let's kill him too. And they kill his son. And then Jesus turns to the scribes and Pharisees and says, when that landowner comes and confronts those vine growers, what will he do to them? And the scribes and Pharisees respond back and they say, why, he will give those wretches the wretched end they deserve. And then he'll take the vineyard away from them and give it to others. And at that point in time, that's when Jesus responds to the scribes and Pharisees and says this phrase in Matthew 21, verse 42. Did you never read the scriptures? Why, by the way, that's quite a dig against people who supposedly were experts in the law. Did you never read the scriptures? And then he quotes Psalm 118, 22 again. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it's marvelous in our eyes. And then he interprets the prophecy in verse 43. I tell you the truth. In the same way, the kingdom is going to be taken from you. Well, when the scribes and Pharisees hear this, you can imagine what they were thinking. And then Jesus makes an amazing comment. He says this in Matthew 21, verse 44. He who falls on this stone, meaning the cornerstone, Jesus. In other words, to him who stumbles, what we just read in 1 Peter 2, 8. He who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces. But on whomever it, will, it falls, it will scatter him like dust. What's he saying? It's a commentary on 1 Peter 2, 8. It's a commentary on Psalm 118, 22. He's talking about the stumbling stone and the rock of offense. He says, you fall on this stone, you're shattered, you're broken into pieces. Now, interesting phrase there. The word fall, it can mean like the man on the road to Jericho who robbers fell on him. It means to attack, to attack the stone. It means outward enmity towards Christ, the living stone. What he's... One author said it this way. He says, whether it's outward enmity or hostility or whether it's just apathy, either way, at the end of time, the stone falls and crushes. You know, whenever you talk about salvation in Jesus Christ, for the most part, you will get some hostility. You'll get some enmity. Oh, in our culture, people don't yell and scream too often. They won't spit on you or anything. But you can see the animosity and the hostility just the same. 
If you don't think that's true, the next time you're in a social gathering or somewhere where you can have a conversation with someone, bring up God. Just start talking about God. You know what? Most people will be very affirming. Most people will be right in lockstep with you, right in league with you. Oh, yeah, God, yeah, God. Oh, they'll, they'll, most people acknowledge they believe in the existence of God. They actually believe in a God of some sort, if you will. But in the course of that conversation, then bring up the fact that Jesus Christ was God come in the flesh and watch what happens. You'll see their countenance change. You will see their body language change. You'll see a whole temperature change to that conversation and a coolness 99 times out of 100 will set in. Why? Because just what it says here, Jesus Christ is a rock of offense and a stone of stumbling to most of the people in the world. You say, well, why is that? I'll tell you why. God, generic sense, not a problem. Hey, Jews believe in God, Muslims believe in God, Christians believe in God, God here, God there, not a problem. God in the abstract doesn't make any claims on your life. But God in the person of Jesus the Christ does. He says, you're a sinner on your way to a real place called hell, and I am the only means of escape. Come to the living rock, the rock of ages. And the unrepentant, prideful heart of man hates that as a general rule. The truth of the matter is, most of the people that I rub elbows with, if you talk about Jesus Christ, they're not outwardly hostile. They don't even show it in different ways. They're really much more apathetic most of the time. Oh, yeah, it's sort of a laissez-faire attitude. They're involved in what Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, so wrapped up in trying to get after personal peace and affluence that they basically just don't have time to even consider Jesus. And the ones that do will say some sort of patronizing things. Oh, Jesus? Oh, I think that's really good for you, John. I think it's good to be a spiritual person. And if you need Jesus, that's great. But I have my own spiritual course that I'm following. I'll give you another one. Uh, Jesus was a good man. Jesus was a prophet. He was a wonderful moral teacher. Isn't it great that there's many ways to God? Here's one that I hear a lot. You know, to me, John, religion is a private thing. You know when people say that, you know what they're really saying to you? Number one, don't confuse me with the facts. And number two, stop talking to me about Jesus Christ. You are invading my personal right to privacy, which is a euphemism for my right not to think. It's exactly what they're saying. Don't talk to me. You know, one well-known pastor who, because he's called upon to speak all around the country at various Bible conferences and so forth, he says, I end up a lot of times on airplanes. And he says, so I'm sitting there constantly trying to pour over my notes or read my Bible or whatever, trying to get prepared because I'm usually pressed for time. And he says, invariably, on airplanes and other, people will turn to me and say, and what do you do? He says, I have a way to make sure you never have another meaningless, wasted conversation with total strangers. He says, whenever anybody asks me that question on an airplane or otherwise, and what do you do? He says, I smile and I look back them in the face and I say, my job is to tell people how they can be relieved from the guilt of their sin through Jesus Christ. He says, you give people that answer. He says, trust me, you'll have all the time to read by yourself whatever you want. They will never talk to you. But on the rare occasion that they do pursue the conversation, he says, you can be guaranteed of something else. You will be involved in a divine appointment 
And you will be talking about things that really matter. And you absolutely will spend the most precious time in the greatest way you could ever spend time talking to a total stranger. You'll be talking about the living rock, Jesus the Christ. That is so very true. You mark it down, friends. The words of Jesus says it well. Enmity or just apathy, ultimately, He who falls on this stone is going to be broken to pieces and he whom the stone falls on is going to get crushed. Meaning what? One commentator said it so well. He said, look at your life as a piece of ceramic pottery. You fall upon, you attack, if you will, the living stone. Throw that pottery at that stone. You know what? The pottery breaks. Or you don't have to attack at all. You can just reject by being apathetic. And ultimately, when the day of judgment comes... The wrath of God and the person of the stone will fall and that pottery gets crushed just the same. The result is still the same. And the scriptures cry out to you today, don't waste your life. Come to the living rock. Let the water and the blood which from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and also Make me pure. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. There are no other choices. Jesus Christ, friends, is the ultimate crisis of life. As one author said, every human being sooner or later must deal with Jesus of Nazareth. Now people hear that and they come back and they say, John, don't you think that's a bit narrow? Don't you think that's a little bit intolerant? Doesn't that sound a little bit exclusive to you, John? You know what the answer to all those questions are? Yes. It is narrow. It's very exclusive. Let me ask you a question. How many cornerstones do you think there are in a building? I'll answer it for you. One. How many cornerstones has Almighty God placed in His spiritual building that He's building? One. Jesus the Christ. Why would you put more restrictions on Almighty God than you do on natural building builders? But I'll tell you what. You believe in Jesus? You love Jesus? Listen to the words of Jesus. Matthew 7, verse 13. Jesus says this. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many there are who enter through it. Get this. But the gate is small. And the way is narrow. That leads to eternal life. And Jesus says few there are who find it. Friends, let me tell you something. Your argument is not with me, some lawyer. Your argument is with the word of God. If you have an argument at all, it's with Jesus the Christ. Almighty God has declared the uniqueness of Christ and the fact that He is only the only way of salvation by the resurrection from the dead. He's the living stone. He's the cornerstone. He's the foundation. He's the choice and precious stone of Almighty God. His uniqueness is established. Two men walked into the Louvre Museum in Paris, France. They were standing in front of a fabulous grand masterpiece of art. These two men were standing there. It just so happened that the curator of the Louvre was standing nearby. And one of these two men, in looking at this art masterpiece, says to his friend, eh, I don't think much of it. The curator overheard that remark. 
and walked over and said this, quote, Dear sir, if I may interrupt, that painting is not on trial. You are. He said, the world has already assessed the quality of that painting. You only demonstrate the frailty of your measuring capability. And friends, so it is with the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. So it is with the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Think about the prideful, fleshly arrogance of man, the creature, to say to the Creator, I don't like your rules. How dare we say such a thing to the God of the universe? Narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, and few there are who find it. And the question is today, have you found it? Have you really found it? Or have you deceived yourself? It's only a question that you, searching your own heart under the power of the Holy Spirit of God, can determine. I pray that you have. If not, come to the living rock. You say, well, John, I know for a fact The Holy Spirit of God has caused me to examine my heart in the light of the Word of God. I know for a fact that I've given my heart and life to Jesus Christ. That's wonderful, friend. Then the encouraging thing to you today is to look at verse 6. At the end of verse 6 and be so encouraged. What does it say? And he who believes in him, get this, shall not be disappointed. That is a tremendous truth. How so? That word there, disappointed, it carries with it the idea of not being deceived, not being misled, not being disappointed, not being ashamed at the ultimate coming of God in the person of Christ. Let me tell you something. Friends will disappoint you. Parents, spouses, children, siblings, other family members, doctors, lawyers, pastors, Indian chiefs, add to the list, throw somebody in there, they'll all at some point in time disappoint you. Jesus Christ never fails. Jesus Christ, the Word of God says, never disappoints. You're going through heartache. You're going through suffering. You're going through hard times right now. Persevere. Run the race with endurance. You have not placed your hope on a false foundation. You have placed your hope on the only true foundation there is. And he's working out something in that spiritual house. And he shot the lines off the cornerstone himself. And he's in sovereign control of everything going on. We may not see it, we may not know it, we may not understand it, but someday we will. While I draw this fleeting death breath, or I close my eyes in death, when I rise to worlds unknown and see thee seated on thy throne, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. What's he saying? While I draw breath, while I'm living this life, When I close my eyes in death, when I go to the next, Jesus Christ will not disappoint. He'll never let us down. Every one of his promises is going to come through. You say, what promises are those? There's too many to list, but read your Bible. What's he say? I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Every one of your hairs, Christ is numbered. Every one of your hairs, Bill is numbered. What's that mean? I know everything about you. I've got it all under control. You're worried about what you're going to eat. You're worried about what you're going to drink. You're worried about what you're going to wear. You're worried about finances. You're worried about the home. You're worried about the mortgage. You're worried about your health. Look, your Heavenly Father knows all these things. He knows that you need these things. Consider the lilies of the field. I tell you the truth, Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as one of these. And what's he say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things are going to be added to you. Build upon the foundation of Jesus the Christ. Humbly submit yourself to God in the heartache you're going through and watch Him work a miracle in your life. Say, yeah, can I really trust Him? 
How do I know he won't disappoint me? Oh, Paul says it's so great in Romans 8. Go read Romans 8 tonight. If God be for us, who can be against us? Who can separate you, believer, from the love of God in Christ Jesus? And then he ends it with that tremendous doxology in Romans 8, verses 38 and 39. What's he say? This is what we should say from our hearts. What does Paul say? I am persuaded. What are you persuaded, Paul? I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. That's the solid rock. That's His promise. He'll never deceive you. He will never let you down. The poet said it so well, Often on the rock I tremble, faint of heart and weak of knee, but the mighty rock of ages never trembles under me amen what truth be encouraged today believer in christ i hope you know the rock if you don't i hope you come to him in saving faith would you all please stand let's join our hearts and our voices together in that great hymn that i've been utilizing is going through this sermon sing it as praise just the first stanza we're going to do it acapella as praise to the living rock, Jesus, the cornerstone. Sing it out from your heart. It's on the screen. Rock of ages. Father and gracious God, we turn our hearts to you at this hour and thank you for this truth from your word. We pray that as we leave here, every heart would know the love of a dying Savior, would live its life in the power of a risen Savior, enabled by the grace of a living Savior, and in light and to the glory of a Savior who is one day coming again. We ask it in the matchless name of that Savior, Jesus the Christ, and all God's people said, Amen.